0: Imagine you're 10 or 11 years old. It's a very cold January. You have just re-entered school for the spring semester and you're exhausted. You've spent all day in class learning about different subjects and you're adjusting to the cold, dark weather. After school, you're going to practice or to dance class and you have just been working all day. Your mom picks you up at around four or five, and you run a few errands with her before heading home. Right as you pull onto your beautiful farmstead, a neighbor who lives on your property pulls your mom over to the side of the road and asks her a few questions about the farm and about the neighbors and about town, and you are so ready to go home. You're busy thinking about the homework you've got to do, the chores that your mom has asked you to do, you're wondering about your grandmother who you live with and if she has already made dinner or if your mom is going to be making something different for you all to eat, and you're very impatiently waiting for your mom to finish her conversation. She finally does, and you pull away from the neighbor and you drive up to your farmhouse. It's a beautiful old farmhouse on 500 acres of cattle farmland. So imagine beautiful, clear, open space in central Kentucky, and you are ready for a snack. You head to the kitchen and you take your sibling with you, and you immediately notice that something is off. You can't quite put your finger on it, you don't really know what's going on, but something feels weird to you. You look around the kitchen and you ask your sibling to step back outside and you decide to adventure down the cellar door stairs. The door is normally closed, but it's open today. The house is cooler than normal, it's almost as though the stove has been off all afternoon, which is a little weird. And you slowly peek down the stairs and take a few steps before you realize that your grandmother is lying at the base of the stairs. Thinking the worst, assuming the worst, you go back up and the first thing that you do is you pick up a hammer and a butcher knife. You're not quite sure what's going on, but you know that seeing your grandmother laying at the base of the stairs like that is giving you the feeling that you're not alone. You Start calling for your mom, but she doesn't come right away. She's upstairs, changing after her long day at work and running errands too. You keep calling her, growing more and more distressed when she finally comes down the stairs. This account comes to us from the trial of Mrs. Irvine. Now, Mrs. Irvine is probably not a name that's incredibly well known to most of you who are listening, but this trial might just be. The case of Mrs. Evelyn Irvine is one that is moderately infamous here in Frankfort and Franklin County. It's an unsolved murder of Mrs. B.B. Jeffers, an elderly woman who lived in her rural farmhouse with her daughter, her daughter's husband, and their two children. This very public trial occurred in the 1940s here in Franklin County, and the case is still one that is incredibly infamous due to the fact that It involved cutting-edge science at the time, and the ultimate verdict on the case itself was never quite reached, nor was there ever a clear-cut solution for who committed the murder. I actually had recorded an earlier episode on this same case, and I decided to re-record it because the case is punctuated by periods of knowing and periods of not knowing, periods of confusion and a lot of witness testimony. Much like the case that we spoke about last week, we talked in depth about some of the ways that the trial is documented using newspaper accounts. And the reports we have on this trial primarily come to us from the newspaper, which is really useful for us looking back historically at the series of events that occurred. Now, we're not left with many first-person references. We don't have any true crime cases or popular podcasts that cover this trial. So it might not be one that even stands out in your mind, but it is one that I definitely think is worth revisiting. There's a lot of really fascinating elements to it, and there's a solid degree of mystery as to the motive and ultimate reasoning behind the crime. Now we're going to talk about the crime itself, but it does get a little gruesome. So if blood or gore is something that makes you uncomfortable, then I recommend tuning out for the next little bit. Mrs. B.B. Jeffers is an elderly woman who is in her late 70s. And again, she lives on a farmhouse on a very successful cattle farm with her daughter and her daughter's husband, who works in Louisville, as well as their two children, who are in their pre-teen years at the time of the death. They also lease out part of their farm to a farmhand named Mr. Herod, who lives on the property On January 10th, 1940, after returning from a day full of errands and different chores, Mrs. Evelyn Irvine, daughter of Mrs. B.B. Jeffers, is greeted by a really horrific sight. Her mother is found dead at the base of the cellar stairs. Although not evident at first glance, it turns out that the cause of death is due to Mrs. Jeffers sustaining a beating with a hot iron. A hot iron here is like a long pole used to stoke a fire. Not knowing initially what caused the death, Mrs. Irvine, once again, Mrs. Jeffers' daughter, believes that her mother has simply fallen down the stairs. She was an elderly woman who was left alone at the time. And there's very clearly a puddle of blood at the base of the stairs, which leads her to believe that her mother has simply had an accident and has entered into a coma or has she immediately calls the police as well as dr minish who is a prominent local physician in order to come examine her mother even before they arrive she realizes that in fact her mother is not just injured but in fact dead she picks her mom up and starts kind of tussling her a little bit in order to kind of re-wake her and failing this begins to quickly realize that the injuries are much more serious than she originally believed. Much of what we know about the events immediately following the discovery of Mrs. Jeffers' body comes to us from a State Journal article published the day after she was discovered. And I really want to commend the State Journal here because the reports that come immediately following this discovery are very detailed for the speed at which things are being turned over both to the police and to the investigators in general. So I'm gonna read through the headline article from the day. This is Thursday morning, January 11th. And the headline is, B.B. Jeffers found murdered, body was lying at bottom step of house cellar. Autopsy shows eight wounds on head, blunt instrument was used, bruises on body. Mrs. Grace Jeffers, elderly widow of Mr. Jeffers, was found beaten to death yesterday afternoon at her farm home on the old Lee's Town Pike. The body was found by Mrs. Jo Irvine, a daughter who, with her husband and two children, makes her home with her mother. Mr. Irvine, who is employed in Louisville, was in that city but returned here last night. Mrs. Irvine had come to town about 2.30 yesterday afternoon to bring her children home from school. Her mother was left alone in the house. At approximately 4.45 o'clock in the afternoon, Mrs. Irvine said the children returned home. Not seeing or hearing her mother in the kitchen, Mrs. Irvine began to search for her, and in doing so, walked to a door which opens on the flight of stairs leading to the basement she saw her mother lying in a huddled heap at the foot of the stairs and thought at first that she had fallen down the steps she rushed down the stairs and found her mother was dead mrs jeffers was lying face down on the floor of the basement with her head towards the furnace blood had flowed from the wounds from her head and a flat iron later said by officials investigating the case to have been the murder weapon was found lying nearby Blood spots were also found on the cellar stairs, the kitchen stove, under the sink, and along the dining room floor from the kitchen to a side door. Ashes from the cook stove were scattered helter-skelter over the kitchen and particularly under the sink and near the entrance to the basement stairs. Coroner Louis Lecomte in charge of the investigation and Sergeant Kelly Berger state bureau of investigation highway patrol proffered a theory of how the crime was committed which reconstructed it in this fashion the murderer they believe struck mrs jeffers as the woman stood working at the sink traces of blood under the sink and on an open oven door nearby indicated that she might have fallen from the first blow and struck her head against the stove door the intruder then took his victim the officials added and damaged her across the length of the kitchen into the cellar steps down which she was either thrown or dragged to the basement then the slayer according to the development of the theory spread ashes over the blood spots in an effort to cover them up officials believe in an attempt to make it appear that the woman had fallen and fatally hurt herself as she was emptying the ashes the killer even went so far investigation disclosed as to attempt to scrub away some of the bloodstains under the sink. And failing that, abandoned the effort and strewed ashes heavily at that spot. Coroner and Sergeant Berger intimated a conviction that the murderer had been attempting to secret the woman's body under a recess beneath the basement steps but changed his mind, or was frightened away before accomplishing that end. Nothing but the ashes was disturbed in the kitchen, and no search or ransacking of any other part of the house was revealed. Although it was generally believed in the neighborhood that the sums of money were frequently kept in the house, robbery as a possible motive could not be established last night with the meager information with which officials had to work. The robbery of a house a few weeks ago was reported, intruders getting some cash and papers, but passing over a larger sum of money. The material evidence at the scene is pretty scant, and it doesn't leave the authorities with a lot of indication in terms of what the motive for the murder is. Is it a robbery? You know, there were other reported robberies in the area. Or does it somehow relate to another internal kind of bubbling below the surface conflict that they might not be fully aware of? They don't give up, though, and they don't just kind of assume that this is everything that's going to be available to them. They begin to do an all-area search of the farm and neighboring property in order to figure out if there's any other evidence that might have been disposed of away from the scene of the crime. And they do report that they found a pair of men's shoes that were thrown off the side of the road near the home, And the shoes that were found do have traces of both ashes and blood on them. It's worth noting here, and we only learn this later, but these particular pair of shoes do not come back up in the trial or any of the subsequent investigative tactics that are taken by the police. Instead, we are introduced to another pair of shoes, but that comes to us a little bit later. Outside of this pair of shoes, the criminal investigators are really looking at the blood found at the scene of the crime, fingerprints that were also found at the scene of the crime, the murder weapon itself, which is unfortunately devoid of all fingerprints, and a couple of strands of hair that are found clutched in the victim's hands. Now, Please keep in mind, this is the 1940s, so television shows like CSI, with their advanced forensic investigative methods, are not depicting this era of human history in the least. Instead, forensic investigation is incredibly new. It's in its infancy. They're still doing a lot of comparative sciences that aren't really grounded in DNA testing or any of the more acceptable forms of scientific forensic testing that we do today. So what they decide to do is they bring in an eminent criminal chemist from Louisville named John Mesmer. And John comes to Frankfurt in order to play the role of blood and hair comparative chemist. and. The newspaper does report that he's working alongside both the police investigation and the doctors who performed Mrs. Jeffers' autopsy. Now, the thing that impresses me personally the most about this case is the degree of speed that these early days have. So, Mrs. Jeffers was murdered, found murdered on January 10th, and by January 14th, they've already had funerary services, and you know, part of me believes that maybe the intention behind the quick speed with which these things was accomplished is maybe to work the case in such a way that might lead to a conviction or a uh, admittance of guilt by the person who committed the murder. But unfortunately, no such thing occurs. And instead, there's a tying between the actual funerary and mourning practices of the family, as well as the case and the testimony itself and things that are coming out of the investigation. And this includes a lot of questions regarding the blood found at the scene of the crime. They are able to determine based on the consistency of the blood and the amount of blood found under Mrs. Jeffers at the base of the stairs that she was actually alive even after the beating occurred. She only passed away a little while later after falling into a coma as the result of her brain swelling and ultimately bleeds out on the floor, and that's really what caused her death. So it's even a more gruesome reality than what we are originally left with. Then things begin to slow down. We don't really get too much information for the next couple of weeks and. There's an interest in performing both lie detection as well as reports coming out about people who are suspected and folks who are going to be potentially indicted for criminal charges in the case. And they even do go so far as to perform a lie detector test on four people. Originally, there's six people they're considering, but two of them are advised by their counsel that they should not undergo a lie detector test. Which makes sense. I mean, lie detector tests are oftentimes used as validating forms of investigatory tactics. But in fact, they are riddled with potential falsehoods and errors. By January 21st, the case has really started to go cold and news reports instead turn towards wanting any possible information, connection, any possible materials that were discarded that may have previously been at the scene. And it becomes clear from the newspaper reports that they're really starting to grasp at straw. There's even discussion of pleas being given on the radio station by folks who are involved in the investigation in order to turn up more or different evidence than what they already have. There's also leaks about different angles and, you know, continued probing, even though nothing is really happening. But this is clearly of extreme interest in the community of Frankfurt at the time, because even if there's no new developments, there is an article published every day the following days. It's not until January 27th, so 17 days after the murder is committed, that the police make an arrest in the case. And shock to all, someone who is not even mentioned as a suspect in any earlier reports, is arrested. And get ready for this. The person is none other than Mrs. Irvine, Mrs. Jeffers' daughter. While seemingly out of left field, the newspaper article published in the State Journal the day after the arrest does give a little bit of insight into the thought behind the motive. Released on bond, trial set for April 8th, Judge Hamilton brings the inquiry into the death to a close. Mrs. Jo Irvine, indicted by the grand jury yesterday on a charge of willful murder in connection with the slaying of her mother, Mrs. B.B. Jeffers, was taken into custody early last night. Only daughter of the elderly woman, farm operator Mrs. Irvine, accompanied Sheriff John M. Lucas to the office of the circuit court clerk, Kelly C. Smither, where she posted a bond of $15,000. The bond was originally fixed at $25,000, but after a call to Judge Artie at the latter's home in Paris, it was reduced to $15,000. Following a posting of the bond, Mrs. Irvine, accompanied by her husband and relatives, returned to the residence she has been occupying on Steel Street since a few days after the murder. April 8th was set as the date of arraignment for the case, inasmuch as the bonds are returnable on court that day. Apparently faced with a stalemate in the case, Judge Hamilton, aided by Detective Lieutenant John Mesmer, Louisville Police Department criminologist, and Major Joe Berman pursued the investigation without ever indicating any action, was taken. Yesterday's developments coming on the heels of a supposed dead lock, where an absence of witnesses and motives seemed to be insurmountable obstacles, came as a distinct surprise to those who had been following the inquiry's court movements in this mystery. Officials had kept their movements secret, and there was no idea prevalent that any break in the case was coming soon. Mrs. Irvine, who before her marriage was Evelyn Jeffers, lived with her husband and two children at her mother's home. She first reported finding the body of her mother and notified authorities on the afternoon of the slaying that something had happened to Mrs. Jeffers. Interpretations of the occurrence were to the effect that Mrs. Jeffers had fallen down the stairs leading to the basement and had been fatally hurt. A minute search of the house and grounds was made with the assistance of the state highway patrolman, and a short time after, officials had reached the scene of the crime. Eight times, they reported, had a heavy blunt instrument been crashed against the woman's head, leaving eight wounds, but only one blow it was added caused death. That was an exceptionally hard impact of the iron, which caused concussion, a brain hemorrhage, and death. The indictment by the grand jury was based upon evidence submitted to it by Lt. Mesmer, Major Berman, Chief of the State Police of Investigation, and Coroner LeCompte. These three, together with Dr. L.T. Minish, one of the physicians who performed the autopsy on the body of Mrs. Jeffers, were called to testify before the grand jury yesterday morning. The evidence was gathered after a weeks-long search of the house and surroundings and interminable questioning of the witnesses who— it was felt might have some knowledge leading to the solution of the crime. Laboratory facilities of the Louisville Police Department were frequently used for technical and expert investigations of sub- such objects of evidence as they were found, to match fingerprints, examine bloodstains, and determine, if possible, who were the two strands of hair found clutch in the woman in the hand of the murdered woman. Now you might be wondering, you know, motive. Right. Like, that's the biggest question throughout all of this is what would lead a daughter to commit the murder of her elderly mother, especially one which is so violent in nature. And a few days after the arrest has been made, the will of Mrs. Jeffers is made public. And interestingly, the recipients of both the land and any financial results of sales regarding the estate goes to Mrs. Irvine's two children, one of whom is the young child who found her body at the base of the stairs. Later in the month of February, a little over a month and a half after Mrs. Jeffers is murdered, the family pastor, Mr. Galloway, is brought in for a deposition by the police where he testifies That Mrs. Jeffers had approached him two weeks before her murder to share that she felt threatened. A big reason of this is due to the robberies that were in the neighborhood. She felt as though her farm might be the next that is hit in the robbery chain. However, she's pretty vague about who she thinks is doing the threatening or, you know, who would be involved in the destruction of her farm. But at no point in his testimony or in his deposition does he discuss her feelings of threatening interactions as ones that would ultimately lead to her murder. And it is worth noting that no money was found taken, nor any other material objects were found taken from the house of Mrs. Jeffers by the police following the death. By early April, the trial is determined to begin on April 23rd, and Mrs. Irvine is going to be defended by attorney Leslie W. Morris, for whom Fort Hill Park is named, and the Commonwealth of the state of Kentucky is going to be prosecuting her for the death of her mother. We could realistically do an entire episode about the political drama surrounding this case in terms of different filings that occurred before the trial actually happened in late April, but we're going to set all that aside and just really get into the meat of it because some very upsetting details about the murder of Mrs. Jeffers come out during the trial. Now, the trial itself happens really quickly. It begins on April 23rd, and by April 24th, The jury has been selected and the prosecution, aka the state of Kentucky, has actually already rested their case. So they have brought up all of their witnesses and they've entered all of their evidence into the court for consideration. So this includes putting in front of the jury bloody apparel that was worn by Mrs. Jeffers when she was found by the police, as well as the murder weapon itself. Uh, then they bring in the pair of shoes that were previously referenced, and uh, they present these at the shoes that were worn by Mrs. Irvine on the afternoon in which she killed her mother. All of the exhibits that are entered into the trial are referred to by the coroner, Mr. LeCompte, and the... Attorney, Commonwealth attorney goes into a direct examination of the man in terms of uh, potential motive that might have been had by Mrs. Irvine related to the success of the cattle farm that Mrs. Jeffers ran at the time. The coroner told of having been called out to the Jeffers home at about five o'clock on the afternoon of the 10th and had planned on arriving there around 520. He described the kitchen as having been in disarray with ashes scattered along the floor and bloodstains visible on the floor, stove, sink, and bits of the furniture. Under cross-examination, he went on to speak about visiting the farmhouse and then later about the autopsy which was performed by Frankfurt Dr. Minish. They originally had believed that the woman was deceased due to falling down the steps and it was only later... Once she had been taken back to the autopsy area, wherein they learned that she had actually been bludgeoned to death. Some upsetting testimony comes out of his reports on this investigation, especially in the early hours of the investigation, which are shared in the article as such. I went to the head of the basement stairs, he added, and from the top of the stairs I could see a flat iron on the floor about 15 inches from the last step. As I walked down the steps, I saw a pair of cotton gloves on the floor. As I neared the bottom, I saw a shoe, then a hand, and then a body. Ashes had been strewn over it too, he added. Further examination of the dead woman, he he said, showed that there was a coating of ashes on her tongue, the roof, and the side walls of the mouth bruises and bloodstains and wounds were on several parts of the body he said and the first joint of the left little finger had been almost mashed off he indicated that a large bruise on the woman's right hand showed by its condition that it had been made while the woman was still living he estimated also that the woman had probably been alive some 20 or 30 minutes in the basement basing the opinion on the pool of blood near the woman's head which he said indicated that she had bled that approximate length time. The coroner declared that the death had been caused by a hemorrhage of the brain caused by the blows. He added that the most severe hemorrhage was caused by a blow on the back near the top of the head. A statement that the floor under the kitchen sink contained blood and ash markings in its board lines and that the area gave evidence of having been scrubbed was also made by the coroner. The coroner goes on to share that the family of Mrs. Irvine was also being difficult to work with at the time of the investigation and were refusing to answer questions related to the death of Mrs. Jeffers. One of the things that really strikes me about this case, and maybe it's because of the way that I first heard about it and the way that people talk about it here at the museum, is the ashes that were found not only strewn around the home, but that were seemingly shoved into Mrs. Jeffers' mouth. And it's, it's very casually brought up in the trial by Mr. LeCompte. It's not really investigated more deeply in any of the newspaper articles. And in fact, it's not really referred to in any of the other newspaper articles either. Even the ones that were coming out at the beginning phases of the investigation and to me, that seems like, you know, something that you would hear about on Dateline as, like, the, like, dun dun moment. Um, or maybe that's Law & Order SVU. I'm, I'm not trying to blend my universes in criminal investigation here. But it does seem really upsetting to think about an elderly woman who is not only murdered, but whose body is desecrated in such a way. And the timeline of said murder. The day after the prosecution rests their case, the defense then enters a plea for acquittal, uh, which is continued by the judge, and they said that no, like, the case has to go on. So the following day, the prosecution is then subjected to the criminal defense case, and their primary witness is actually Mrs. Irvine herself, who takes the stand and impressively discusses the entirety of her day. And the newspaper actually prints a day by day accounting of her experience. It includes how she found her mother and her desire to check on her mom as soon as she's located and the ways in which blood would have found its way onto the soles of her shoes as well as onto her outfit through the act of comforting her mom. It's uh, very interesting then that the prosecution in their cross-examination spend a lot of time discussing the fact that there is blood found on her shoes and inquiring as, as to why she thought it good to step through the blood itself. The defense then brings up a bevy of local townsfolk who actually interacted with Mrs. Irvine throughout the day of the murder. And they all testified to her calm and normal demeanor that they don't believe that her behavior that day is indicative of somebody who is about to commit matricide. And then instead it just kind of seemed like it was any other day. And obviously this series of events is really difficult for her. The prosecution also spends a lot of time discussing motive here and their primary thrust of the motive, both in terms of the divorce of Mrs. Irvine, as well as the will and the division of money from the farm to the children, is really um, kind of fought back against by the defense in saying that You know, there was no real plan for divorce or there was no way that Mrs. Jeffers would have known about any forthcoming divorce because of the behavior of her daughter and son-in-law at the time and, and the way in which they were treating each other and how he was still living at home. So there was no apparent reason for the divorce and that Mrs. Jeffers had been really open about the allocation of her will so that there, there wasn't really a secret about the division of the monetary gains of the farm among Mrs. Jeffers' grandchildren, Mrs. Irvine's children. There would have been no reason for Mrs. Irvine to behave in such an extreme manner over something that she was already so knowledgeable about. At the end of the day of the defense's case, they rest and the jury is dismissed in order to deliver a verdict on the case. So unlike most contemporary criminal trials, which last a week or a series of weeks, this case is immediately going into deliberation exactly three days after it began, which is pretty crazy to think about in terms of timeline and how fast things were moving. And granted, these were very long days. The State Journal then reports that the case is acquitted at the end. The jury is deadlocked. They're not able to reach a decision, and they're trying, and the judge is trying to coax them into reaching a decision, but no such luck. Uh, There's 10 folks who are for one verdict, and there's one who's against, and they all cannot agree. So if you're unfamiliar with legal practice in these instances, typically what happens is that when a jury is entering the deliberation phase, they almost agree on an outcome or there can be a series of parameters set by the judge and counsel which dictate how a you know a jury can assign fault or blame and you know it's it's a it's a very long and arduous process. However, if the jury is unable to reach a decision, a mistrial will often be declared, as is the result of this trial. It's it's labeled a mistrial, and they agree to reapproach the case later in the year. The article about the mistrial and the acquittal and and the uh, change of ultimate date for the new trial to begin is a little. Heavy handed in some of the ways that it's discussed, but I, I want to note this article on the jury disagreeing because the State Journal actually reports something very fascinating that happened at the trial on the previous day, which is that the courtroom itself actually became a chemistry lab of sorts and. Part of the prosecution's case was that they performed chemical lab analysis on the court reporter's desk, which is hilarious to think about. Uh, I really can't even imagine witnessing that, uh, that they were performing like these blood test samples on the desk of the court reporter during the trial. So this is where this case unfortunately at the end, becomes rather unsatisfactory for those of us who like a neat little ribbon in criminal investigatory cases. The trial, once again, is declared a mistrial and they agree to do a new trial later this year. And we do not have any record or indication about the eventual trial that occurs. Instead, the next reference to Evelyn Irvine or Evelyn Jeffers Irvine that we've been able to find is to her obituary, which is 13 years after the death of her mother, where they don't even reference that her mother died or the trial or the case or the accusation, any of that. And instead, they reference Mrs. Irvine's family relationships, including that she is still married to her husband and that her two children are now grown on their own for a case that has such a intense beginning as well as such an intense series of events, including the daughter being accused of the murder, the brutal nature of the murder, the lack of any compelling motive, all kind of culminating in this mistrial wherein there are no additional suspects put forth and everything just kind of seems to peter out, really leaves one disappointed, I think, that there's not a clear cut-and-dry case. There's no, yes, this person 100% did this, we have the smoking gun, we know that this is the person who should be convicted, and instead we're kind of left like, why did this all get dropped, I don't mean to be too academic for anyone who is listening to this podcast, but I would like to suggest that we consider this case as haunting in a different way than that of The Widow of Stony Creek. Now, I'm not saying there aren't similarities because there definitely are, but I think that this case sticks with someone, dear listener, in such a way that it is haunting in and of itself the death of Mrs. Jeffers haunts us. It's an older woman who was found brutally slain and thrown down her basement stairs, with ashes shoved in her mouth and strewn about her body. It's haunting in that her daughter is ultimately the one who was accused for reasons which feel as though a lack of any other potential suspect, and aren't really related to any real evidence that would suggest why she is the woman who is being targeted in this case. And ultimately, it's haunting because we don't have answers. I wish I could offer some for you, dear listener, but sadly, I cannot. And unfortunately for us all, next week's investigation into a grizzly murder will leave us asking the same kind of questions and haunted in a very different way the next trial we're going to talk about is also a little bit closer to the museum so i'm i'm really excited and interested to bring that piece of history to everybody who is listening Thank you so much for joining us on this journey of the trial of Mrs. Irvine and the murder of Mrs. Jeffers. There's, again, some really disturbing photos out there of the crime scene, so if you go investigating yourself, just be aware that you might stumble onto them. They were published a little more widely in some of the regional newspapers, but not in the state journal itself. And I would be remiss to not close out this episode without a bevy of thanks, first and foremost, to Beth Shields for doing additional research and compilation, as well as being a sounding board for some thoughts regarding the death of Mrs. Jeffers. And an also huge thank you to former historian Russ Hatter, who is the original collector of research and articles related to Mrs. Jeffers' murder. So thank you both to our esteemed city historians. Also, I wanted to give a little plug to the Capital City Museum. If you find your interest peaked in terms of any historical and uh, Frankfort, Franklin County information, I hope you'll contact us. City historian Beth Shields is the best researcher in the universe, and she can find literally anything that you could possibly want to know about. We are also an active museum with a lot of really cool exhibits, some of which we are also working on, putting on for all audiences. We're open Monday through Saturday from 10 to 4 p.m. every day. I said that weird. 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, on those days, so I hope you'll come visit. We are entirely free, so if you're looking for something fun and free to do, please do so. If you're listening before October 22nd, I hope you will join us at Haunting on the Hill at Fort Hill Leslie Morris Park. Uh, Again, the name of the attorney from the case that we talked about today. This free event will be both family-focused with a trick-or-treat trail, pumpkin painting, all that good stuff. And it will be uh, adult-focused, which is maybe a weird way to phrase the um, adult participation through our beer garden that we're going to be having at a cemetery site. So it's definitely one for the books. Anyway, I appreciate you listening. And if you like the show, please let us know and give us a review. That will be incredibly helpful. And if you don't like the show, also let us know. We always like to improve. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining, and we'll see you next time here on Kentucky Deceased.